I discovered um, that this, this week that um, actually one of our oldest Christmas traditions is complaining that it's got too commercialised. Um, it's actually been voiced by many back uh, until at least the 17th century and probably um, distinctly earlier than that. Um, but still, for hundreds and hundreds of years in uh, uh, December, people flock like lemmings from shop to shop and finally collapse on the 25th into a miasma of food and drink and uh, trinkets. And so every year, the cry goes up, we've forgotten the true meaning of Christmas. I actually googled forgotten the true meaning of Christmas. It's always good fun, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, The top article was a schmaltzy piece about Christmas not being about the presents, but it is the season of love, said the article writer. Unfortunately, she had to make some money out of her her, um, her website, so she uh, subscribed to Google Ads, and they put down the right-hand side adverts for cheap Christmas gifts, a crystal Christmas bear... And there was even an Amazon advert inviting me to search for true meaning of Christmas on Amazon and I would get low-priced music with free UK delivery. Such is the nature of Christmas. I'm hopeful, actually, at the moment, that there is a little bit of a renewed desire for um, discovering the true meaning of Christmas. Attendance at uh, carol services and... uh, uh, other Christmas services is rising just slightly. 35% of the population of the UK go to a, a Christmas service, a religious service at Christmas of uh, some sort or other. People want something more than just the simple season of excess, I think. They would like to know what the true meaning of Christmas is. So, it's with that optimism that last week and this week and the next, I've I've decided that we should dig a little bit deeper um, about what Christmas is all about uh, by looking at these first couple of um, chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And last week, if you were here, we looked at the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, that uh, long genealogy, and we discovered it actually holds a very, very important message. God keeps his promises. A promise that he originally made centuries, millennia before to Abraham, he was determined to keep, and Matthew traced that. When Christmas was born, it was the solid sign and seal of a fundamental and massively important truth, God keeps his promises. There is not a single promise that he makes, that he has ever made, that he has ever failed to keep. But today we're going to start to explore how Matthew then unfolds this story of God keeping his promises. And uh, the story takes a couple of shocking twists right from uh, the the beginning of it. That it's not immediately clear what they're all about to start with. But uh, there they are, 
at the beginning. The story is a story right from the beginning of shame and glory. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, leaving aside that Holy Spirit stuff for a, for a moment, the, the, you know this this is a this is a shock. This young woman is found to be pregnant, and clearly not just through the impatience of a fiance. Before they came together. You know, there are some pretty dubious births in the genealogy that uh, Matthew records, but none of them actually just simply through that simple adultery. Even Solomon, who uh, uh, was David and Bathsheba's son, he was the son of a relationship that started uh, uh, adulterously between David and Bathsheba, but Solomon was born when they were safely married. Not so Mary and this child that's going to be born. And Joseph's a good man, we're told, and by the custom of his day, he's already bound into uh, some uh, a form of commitment, which um, um, is called being pledged there, and it's an engagement. And in order to get out of it, he has to um, um, uh, initiate legal proceedings. He resolves to do it quietly. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. It's the first question then that Matthew's first readers are going to be asking. Why on earth is God allowing this man, who Matthew has already named as the Christ, the great hope for the whole of history, why is God allowing him to be born in such dubious circumstances, such a shameful situation? In some ways, this is the most shameful story in the whole of Israel's history so far. But it is also, says Matthew, the most glorious. The child is not the result of some illicit union. Matthew's made it plain. He is conceived through the Holy Spirit. And Joseph has to be told that particularly. Verse 20, after he had considered this, his divorce, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, nothing like any of the genealogies so far. This time because it's more glorious. Oh, true, there, was, there were miracles before. For instance, Abraham and Sarah were promised that they would conceive when they were well past childbearing age. And they did. But they still conceived in the normal way. Not so. Mary. Oh, this is this is a miracle of a whole different order. This is a human life being created in her womb by God Himself, with no mediating agent whatsoever. Incredible shame. Amazing glory. What's going on here? 
Well, says uh, Matthew, in essence, it's very simple. Now, this baby is going to bring about a new kind of salvation. Verse 21. She will give birth, says the angel, to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This verse is absolutely packed with things that we need to take notice of. Um, For instance, notice that the name Jesus means the Lord saves. But then the angel goes on to say that he will save. Is it God or is it this baby who will save? Or is this baby God? More on that in a moment. Secondly, though, the angel um, pointedly says he will save his people. Now, he's loosely um, paraphrasing this angel, it seems, Psalm 130, verse 8, in which we are promised God himself will redeem Israel from their sins. But he's substituted for Israel his people. And in principle, therefore, expanding the realm of this salvation, not just to one nation, but actually to anybody who um, um, uh, uh, seeks the forgiveness of Jesus, anyone who seeks to come under the umbrella of Jesus, anyone who becomes one of Jesus' people. But the most important thing from uh, um, verse 21 that I want you to notice is that he will save his people from their sins. Now, when you read the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, the hopes of Israel were focused on a future um, leader whom they called the Christ. Jesus has already been announced as that. Who would be a political, a royal, um, a military leader. In first century Palestine, living under the rule of the, uh, the Romans, that, that hope was deeply precious. They wanted, they needed a leader who would, who would come and save them from the Romans. So it is a complete shock, the end of that sentence. He will save his people from their sins. And now we're getting to the heart of what we need to see this morning. Because actually, most human beings have basically Old Testament hopes. The salvation that they're looking for is of a particular kind. What, well, you know, what, what, what salvation are you looking for? Most people focus their hopes on political salvation of one sort or another. We are interested in what government we have because we will be saved 
from crime by a government which provides a good police force. We will be saved from poverty by a government which manages the economy well um, and which provides us with good and affordable education. We will be saved from terrorism by a government which, which has a good army and good security services. And who knows, we might even be saved from death by a government that provides us with good hospital services. It is not surprising that we are passionately interested in all of those things. Oxford is a highly politicised area, um, particularly East Oxford, I think, even in the last week, um, if... uh, 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 recent news items are anything to go by, Um, East Oxford could be labelled as a potentially riotously mutinous area. It's not so different from first century Palestine, which was always uh, rumbling with unrest. Why why is Oxford, why are the young people of Oxford so aerated and animated? No doubt for lots of good reasons of justice and equality. But I wonder, underneath is there a sense that politics is our salvation? So we must be absolutely clear what this verse points us to. Jesus didn't come to save us, at least immediately, from bad government. Not because bad government shouldn't be opposed, not because bad policies shouldn't be campaigned about, they should, but because that is not the heart of our problem. There's something else is, hundred years ago, um, as happens perennially in one form or another, the Times newspaper was... was uh, um, um, invited a variety of eminent people to write essays on the question of what is wrong with the world. And the the Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton decided to write his answer in the form of a letter. It went like this. Dear Sirs, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Got to the heart of it. The heart of our problem, you see, is, is not out there. It is in here. It is not bad government or anything else like that. It is my sin. And yours. And You see, our culture is massively, massively averse to that word sin. Just just listening to the radio this week um, with uh, this verse in my mind has reminded me of that in a dozen ways. For instance, I heard a a piece this week on um, about teenagers and um, pornography and how parents should deal with it. And both the interviewer and the interviewee agreed right at the beginning of the conversation it must be non-judgmentally dealt with. That's what they said. And instead, actually, 
the, uh, the wise person insisted that the poor squirming teenager would have to be asked how they felt about viewing pornography. I mean, that seems to be, to be honest, a refined form of torture. <laughs> but they couldn't bring themselves just to say it's wrong. Or um, another debate that I heard about um, discussing antisocial behaviour. And actually my mind went back to the first time that I personally heard um, that phrase, antisocial behaviour. It was a new trendy teacher who arrived at our school who um, uh, used to solemnly tell us that naughty boys were, were guilty of antisocial behaviour and he used to say they need help. And frankly, we mocked him. You know? We used to go round saying, these boys need help, just, uh, just so that he could sort of almost hear us saying it. Because everybody knew naughty boys need discipline. And as I, as I thought about that, I thought, it's just absolutely amazing. That something that everybody agreed was to be mocked has become the mainstream, central language of all discussion. It even fitted into Asbos, didn't it? Now, the word sin today is reserved for uh, delicious little peccadilloes like eating cream cakes. It's avoided in serious discussion. And I'm, I'm acutely aware, you see, that talking about this can make me sound like a middle-aged old buffer, which, of course, I, I may be. But um, uh, there are people who talk about sin are not just austere uh, killjoys, horrible despots, nasty legalists. If you believe that, you see, you've been duped by a propaganda campaign of the most insidious and vicious kind. Uh, there were plenty of people of previous generations with a clear moral framework who were prepared to stand up for it, who were not cruel nuns or re repressed, repressed hypocrites or ignorant simpletons. They were by and large good, honest people who called a spade a spade and did an enormous amount of good in their families and in a wider society and indeed it did an enormous amount of good in their own lives too because they owned up to this problem human beings sin it's no accident that the decline of the concept has been associated with the rising risen, prison populations an actual increase in psychological problems uh, uh, amongst people despite the fact that we are assured that sin actually leads to psychological problems a massive decline in the stability of families as well um, and on the list goes. Now, we have done something dangerous, important, deeply damaging to human beings by avoiding this central concept of what it means to be human. Actually, whenever you look at the discourse, it's always edging back towards this, whether you're watching Super Nanny or discussing Asbos. 
But nobody will quite own up to the central thing. Human beings are responsible, morally accountable um, uh, uh, creatures who sometimes do wrong. They sin. And yet, if we do not own up to that, we degrade humanity. We, 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 we make us into, make ourselves into passive victims of the system. We make ourselves into helpless victims of our animal urges. We make ourselves into, into, um, um, into ignorant people who just need a bit of more education and we will be perfect. But it is essential to the dignity of human beings. We make decisions. Sometimes those decisions are wrong. We must stand tall and accept that aspect of our humanity or we will not understand what's wrong with us. We sin. Okay. So Jesus then, or Matthew, gets to the nub of the issues. He will save his people from their sins. He will save them, first of all, says Matthew, um, uh, as as his story goes on, from the, the penalty for their sins, the punishment for their sins. Because, you see, we are morally accountable before the living God. And actually, we cannot pay the penalty for our sins. penalty before God is death. But you see, here's where that first hint of shame in Jesus' life is heading. His life began shamefully, but it continued shamefully, where he was despised and rejected by people and finally found himself on a cross rejected by God. He was going to be a different kind of saviour because he was going to pay the penalty for our sins. Crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by God the Father so that we did not need to be. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be saved from their penalty ourselves. But he did more than that. He, he, um, he liberated us from the tyranny of sin. The Bible makes it very plain that once someone is, is forgiven fully of their sins, they have a new status, a new relationship with God, which actually enables them to start to live differently. Sin shall not be your master, says the Apostle Paul. It's a promise. Christians actually are not the people they would have been if they hadn't come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you are not changed, you have no right to be called a Christian. But but throughout this room, there are people who have been changed, not perfect, 
but no longer actually completely admired in their sin. And that is just a foretaste of God's final promise, a final freedom from sin itself in eternity where we are promised we will be raised to resurrection life, where there is no death or mourning or crying or pain, because there will be no sin. That is the kind of salvation that Jesus is going to achieve. Paying the penalty for our sin, liberating us from the tyranny of our sin, promising actually that one day we will be in eternity. Free from all evil. And that needs something else, as Matthew has already indicated. It needs a new kind of saviour. Remember, Matthew has has highlighted that all the way uh, through this passage. Jesus was conceived through the Holy Spirit. In other words, alongside that shame, there is something incredibly glorious about him. Jesus' name means God saves, but he's going to save. He's going to do the work of God. And just in case we'd missed it, Matthew then in verse 22, verses 22 and 23 makes it absolutely crystal clear. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah predicted it hundreds of years before and now on that first Christmas, here it is. To do something as great as that To get to the heart of the problem and solve it, the problem of sin, it's going to need no ordinary saviour. Indeed, it's going to need God himself made man. And God keeps his promises. So he came in the person of Jesus. Um, This week, teenagers were protesting en masse against um, tuition fees. And um, Keith Mitchell, the head of Oxfordshire County Council, controversially tweeted, County Hall invaded by an ugly, badly dressed student rabble. God help us if this is our future. Exactly. Of course, Keith Mitchell implicitly assumes that if he's in charge, then he will need no help from God. Now, I beg to differ. God help us whoever's in charge. That's what the Bible says. That's what history has proven over these thousands of years. On all sides, frankly, the debates tend to implicitly assume that if I and my mates and the people like me ruled the world, then it would be okay. Well, the world's been going for a little while now and I haven't seen it yet. 
And of course, Keith Mitchell's cry, God help us, whether he intended it to be or not, is a cry of despair in one sense, isn't it? Just another way of saying there is no hope. Well, Councillor Mitchell, you're wrong. God has helped us. No, he's not set up a new political system yet. We are told in the Bible that awaits something as radical as the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. But he has come to this earth. He has paid the penalty for our sin. He has begun to form a new people of God who are no longer utterly tyrannised by their sin, who can start to function imperfectly, but they can start to function as human beings were meant to function. It is called the church. So, this morning I, 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 I want to ask you this, this fundamental question. Can you see that this is your most fundamental need? And have you sought Jesus to provide the answer? Because that's why he came that first Christmas. If, if, if you're a believer here, then, then that is what has happened to you. And rejoice this Christmas profoundly because he has paid for all of your sins and he has made the way for your transformation now and your final transformation in eternity. And what he has begun, he will carry on to completion. That is a promise that you can rejoice in this Christmas. And if you're not a Christian yet, and just let me ask you, is there a better analysis of our human condition? Is there? Or painful as it is, does Jesus get to the heart of it? As G.K. Chesterton put it, Dear Sir, the problem with this world I am. And will you simply bow the knee to Jesus, seek his forgiveness, and start walking that path to glory? He's open for us all.